to Book Chatter, a monthly book club podcast presented by the Longmont Public Library. I'm Jana, your host for this episode, and with me today are Devin, hello, Josie, hi, and Denise, hi, to discuss our latest pick, Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole by Susan Cain. And as usual, today we'll be discussing this book in its entirety, so if you haven't finished reading Bittersweet yet, you might want to return to this episode once you've done so. And a little bit about the author. Named one of the top 10 influencers in the world by LinkedIn, Susan Cain is a renowned speaker and author of the award-winning books Quiet, Power, Quiet Journal, and Quiet, The Power of Introverts in a World That Can't Stop Talking. Translated into more than 40 languages, Quiet has appeared on many best-of lists, spent more than seven years on the New York Times bestseller list, and was named the number one book of the year by Fast Company, which also named Kane one of its most creative people in business. Her TED Talk on the power of introverts has been viewed over 40 million times. Kane describes bittersweetness as a tendency to states of longing, poignancy, and sorrow, an acute awareness of passing time, and a curiously piercing joy when beholding beauty. It recognizes that light and dark, birth and death, bitter and sweet are forever paired. A song in a minor key, an elegiac poem, or even a touching television commercial can all bring us to this sublime, even holy state of mind, and ultimately to greater kinship with our fellow humans. But bittersweetness is not, as we tend to think, just a momentary feeling or event. It's also a way of being, a storied heritage. Our artistic and spiritual traditions amplified by recent scientific and management research, teach us its power. And let's throw some stars at this, as Barb would say. Uh, Devin, what do you think? Um, so I'm a big fan of Susan Cain. I loved her book, Quiet, um, and read that um, you know, in its entirety, and I watched her TED Talks. Probably four of those four million views were mine um, on YouTube. Um, she has a lovely voice. Um, I think she's really smart. I was disappointed in this book. Um, I'm going to give it a two and a half. Whoa. Yeah, probably <laughs> the lowest one, which I'm really shocked. I was excited to read this. It just, it seemed like common sense, and it seemed obvious, everything she was talking about, and I felt like she repeated herself a lot. Um, I don't know if this was just the wrong time for me to read this book, but it did not hold my attention, and I struggled to get through it, and if I'm being honest, I didn't finish it. So, yeah. All right. How about you, Josie? I'm going to give it a four. Um, this really didn't introduce a new concept to me. Uh, bittersweetness has sort of been with me all my life. Um, I use another word for it, richness. Um, I think it gives life its richness. And... Um, I, I like Devin. I, 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 a lot of it was, was, yeah, I was just like, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So this wasn't a re revelatory book for me. I, I didn't learn anything new about myself. Um, but I, I did think the things she talked about are important. I do think, um, melancholy and bittersweetness is definitely, um, looked down upon in our society and we kind of want to run away from it or cover it up. Um, so I appreciate that. So yeah, I'm going to give it a four. Uh, I, I think she has some really beautiful sentences and words, you know, um, 
how she explained bittersweetness, deeply flawed yet stubbornly beautiful world. I thought that was really pretty. Um, so yeah, four. All right. How about you, Denise? Um, actually, I also gave it a four. Uh, and it seemed very logical and, and intuitive as for me also. The thing for me was that I re- it resonated with me, but it, it just kind of put some wor- words to what I have experienced. I was like, oh, right. I hadn't thought of it as this phrase, this term. Yeah, I kind of nailed it down a little bit more, but nothing necessarily earth-shattering. I enjoyed the perspectives. Yeah, I did enjoy how she brought in um, differences in religions but and how that plays in, but yet the commonalities of that human that human nature, that human experience. So, yeah, it wasn't my my most favorite so far, but it was it was good. All right, thanks Denise. I give it a 5. Um <laughs> I I rate our books pretty highly cuz I find that in almost everything I read, I take something away. And this book, even though it was um kind of preaching to the choir as Denise said, um in terms of my personality, I learned a lot. I like how she really delved into the subject matter. She went back to ancient Greece, talked about the different the four humors that informed mm-hmm. a medicine and personality back then and goes all the way up into uh, modern, you know, pop culture with references to Leonard Cohen songs. There are so many beautiful quotes like Josie mentioned sprinkled throughout this work, references to music. Um I just felt like it had a lot to offer and I enjoyed her narration as well. I listened to it too. Yeah. So, nice. So, let's move on to some discussion questions. We got our questions this time from Susan Kane's own website, which I do recommend visiting. Um, there's a quiz there where you can find where you're located on the bittersweet spectrum as well as many resources. What do you think of the bittersweet idea that light and dark, birth and death, bitter and sweet, are forever paired. Does this describe your life experiences? And what areas of your life do you now see through a bittersweet lens? My thought, first thought, was back to the quote that that Josie just shared. Um, Bittersweetness is an authentic and elevating response to a problem of being alive in a deeply flawed yet stubbornly beautiful world. And I really very nicely summed it up when she was talking about the Pixar movie, you know, making of Inside Out and how sadness needed to be in the front. It needed to be right there with joy um, and bringing that out and how that was kind of a, a gamble and they weren't sure about it, but it was hugely successful. It was and how important that was to have both the bitter of sadness and the sweet of joy. It not only made that movie a deeper experience, but I th- it really is important to have both to have that um, that rich, as you said, richness, that deepness of the experience. Um, I think part of it is, it is that it's a juxtaposition, kind of a polarized process in the brain. But it, you know, they we're talking about the vagus nerve and how it, it actually does having both when they, the experiment of showing someone people just happiness, people just sadness, and people bittersweet things, how it literally activated more parts of the brain. Yeah, it just seems like it rounds out whatever you're experiencing or thinking about. And for me, a couple of ways I noticed it was um, 
partly with book endings. Like if you've ever ended a series or ended a book and you're like, oh, it had a really nice, you know, and they lived happily ever. You're like, oh, that's a nice warm feeling. But the ones where there's that little bit of jagged, you know, it's not neatly packaged and it just kind of stays with you. And part of you is like, oh, why did that character have to? Or why couldn't it be? And But also, oh, they did have some happiness. You think about it longer and you feel it. It's long. I think that's why fan fiction exists, you know, because some people like either it's just really gnawing at me or <laughs> I'd rather explore this other maybe bittersweet part of it. And I think it also gives more discussion. If you were just having a happy experience, you can go down that road of, oh, yeah, this was nice. But when it's not so neatly packaged and there are parts that are maybe a little more uncomfortable or whatever, it is a better way to connect with people. And my other thought on this was, for me, was um, gardening. And I was talking about, like, the maybe think of, like, the seasons, right? They're, they're changing, and for me... Um, I love to grow things. I like seeing them grow. Or, you know, they're bigger in the morning than they were the night before, or all of a sudden they have a flower on them. And so I start thinking about my garden like like in December, January. What am I going to do next? And planning it, figuring it out. And so then I want to start planting and getting going, and even that anticipation of it. And then I get going in the spring. But, you know, starting maybe like May, there, it starts to be that, oh, but in a few months, in a few weeks, it's going to be gone. All right? this work for, yeah. It's going to yeah. die. Well, didn't she refer to that in the first chapter when she was describing longing? Mm-hmm. Like the journey yep. is more important than the destination, mm-hmm. the getting there. Yeah. Um, yeah, that that kind of relates to the gardening yeah, aspect, I think. I love doing it. I love what mm-hmm. comes out of it, sharing it with people. But there is always this almost anxiety because... I'm going to lose it, mm-hmm. however much I enjoyed it. And then at the, in the fall, when I am losing it, I just sort of, maybe it's my way of like not dealing with it. I just skip on to, okay, but next year we're going to start <laughs> again. You know, what, moving on because I don't like that feeling. You don't want to so, grieve your garden. Huh? Yeah. Everyone else is like, oh, I love fall. It's so nice. And I'm just <laughs> like, this sucks. Everything's dying. Yeah. Oh, no, <laughs> so, I love fall. <laughs> I know. Me too. It's the beginning of something. It's the life. It's the beginning of something else to me. It's, yeah. Summer just seems to drag on. And I had to start embracing cool. it as like that sleep. And that mm-hmm. rest, mm-hmm. you know. Like Maybe that's earth. why I like it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> mm-hmm. The question is, what areas of your life do you now see through a bittersweet lens? Um, I would take out that now. <laughs> um, what areas of your life do you see through a bittersweet lens? And probably the biggest one for me at this point in my life is my children. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> and them getting older yeah. and – just the impermanence of it, you know, and you ne- you're never going to get those little babies back, right? You're never going to get those babies back. You're never going to get those hugs like you did. Um, my relationship with my boys, especially my oldest, who's going to be 17 in about 19 days. Happy birthday, Henry. Uh, yeah. Our relationship's different, and he doesn't need me anymore as much, you know, mm-hmm. um, and that's hard for me to deal with. It's been hard for me too figure out where I fit and I you're so thankful for them and that they're growing up because mm-hmm. you know obviously that's what you want to happen um, but that is definitely bittersweet it's it's difficult yeah to say goodbye to those old things yeah. um, and accept the new things so 
That sure. and just turning, getting older, <laughs> aging. Yeah. Give them the keys to your car. Mm, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You watch them blossom into these wonderful young people, and then you're like, okay, but that also means that mm-hmm. I'm like getting further from mm-hmm. that wonderful part. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You, you prepare them to leave. <laughs> That's your job. Yeah. Does your job when your kids can survive without you? You've done your job. You've done right. your job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's hard. Yeah, it's it very hard. So, how do we all fit onto the bittersweet scale? We all took the test yeah. on her website. Very right? interesting. Uh-huh. Seeing the should results. we should we start with? We should. The oh. lowest oh, score? That would be me, Devin. <laughs> Maybe um, that's why you didn't like it. You that's know what? what? I was thinking. We were talking about the that, Janet and I. She was like, "It's neat to see." The people that didn't really enjoy the book were the small, you know, the one person was the one on the lower end of the scale. You were what, 2.4? 2, 2. 2. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't really, I mean, I cry the Sarah McLaughlin <laughs> commercials because how can you not if you're even alive? But yeah, I don't, I didn't, I'm not an old soul, none of that stuff related to me at all. But um, yeah, 2.4. So the next one would be... Denise. Mm-hmm. Denise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a 5.7. Denise and I were close. We were 5.9, 5.7. Yeah. yeah. And um, for me, it was kind of, I'm either, it was mostly like a, an 8, 9, 10, or like a 0. Yeah. So I mm-hmm. don't know about you, Joseph, but I didn't, it wasn't a 5.7 because my answers were in the middle. It's because they Skewed were Skewed one split. way or the other. Yeah, I was like, yeah. oh, do you, you know, they cry at songs and stuff. Like eight, nine. Are you an old soul? Zero. Yeah. So, yeah. And I thought, oh, well, maybe that just makes you like a really weird, odd person. But then I was definitely like, I'm does. in good company. <laughs> Josie's in the middle too. And Jana, <laughs> sweet Jana. Janice loved the book, gave it a five, and got the. Well, you guys know that I cry a lot, right? (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. (laughs) And like, I'll cry at work, and um, but I don't cry at like Hallmark cards or commercials. I don't. I I hate that insipid stuff. And Mm -hmm. my English teacher taught me in high school. He said, you don't buy the Hallmark card, like go look for the poetry mm-hmm. or write it down, like write the specifics down, mm-hmm. uh-huh. not the generalities, because that's uh-huh. where the, the beauty is really. Mm-hmm. But um, people have called me an old soul. My mom said people would say that about me when I was a I baby even. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I scored pretty highly. Pretty high. Yeah. yeah. And she didn't the author say something like that in the book about the quiz, like the people that tend to be more nostalgic and and bittersweet and longing and more sensitive would score mm-hmm. higher the sen- oh, yeah. yeah sensitivity yeah. Yeah. 5.7 or above if you score above 5.7 so so Denise is right on this <laughs> cusp the there you're a true connoisseur of the place where light and dark meet for Miss Devon if your number is lower than 3.8 you tend toward the sanguine <laughs> the humor yeah um and then if your number is above 3.8 and below 5.7, you tend to move between sanguine and bittersweet status. Let's go on to the next question. Um, people play the happy songs on their playlists about 175 times on average, but they play the sad songs almost 800 times, writes Susan Kane. They tell researchers that they associate sad music with profound beauty, deep connection, transcendence, nostalgia, and common humanity. Mm-hmm. Can you relate to this? What songs do you enjoy listening to? Which are your favorites and why? Mm. So nostalgia was an emotion that she talked about that I really relate to. Um, in the intro, Janet, you said something, and I wrote it down, acute awareness of passing time. And that that really, like, whoa, struck something with me. Um, the songs that, I guess 
are my favorite. I don't know if they're my favorite, but the ones that invoke that feeling are songs that like my parents played, you know, mm-hmm. as, a, as a child in the house. You know, they would play, my mom would play Inya and all this other stuff. Um, Indigo Girls and Fleetwood Mac and Bread. And I just yeah. love those bread. songs. My mom to bread. Yes, it reminds me of a little girl and I can picture my mom. Mm. Clear as day, folding laundry on the bed and I think they had a record player. Uh-huh. Um, I love those. I love those songs because I can. It takes me right back to time. Um, and then when Naomi Judd died recently, uh-huh. um, I used to really like country music when I lived back home and in high school, and we were we would listen to country music. So I started. I hadn't listened to it since I've been here in Colorado and ten for ten years. I started listening to all those old songs like Earl Thomas Conley and Dan Seals and. Things that I hadn't listened to since high school. And gosh, wow, that took me, flew me back in time. And I, of course, I had to text my best friend from high school and be like, Tammy, oh my gosh, I'm listening to these songs for the first time in so long. And then, you know, my dad's dead and he always liked Phil Collins and Tears for Fears and things like that. Uh-huh. So, yeah, those are the songs that really. Country music definitely is bittersweet music. I oh, think. definitely, definitely. Absolutely. But yeah, it just really jogs memories in me. And, mm-hmm. and I don't cry. I mean, not always, but. It does something inside. I can feel it in my gut. Yeah. Yeah, there's there's two pieces that I I can think of straight off that if I listen to them, I will I will be in tears. <laughs> um, and so what, what, um, are they? what are they? Well, there's the the whole planet the planet symphony by Holst, oh. which is probably my favorite piece of orchestral music. Um, but uh, Jupiter, um, it has a theme there in the middle, and it's got. The horns and the trumpets, and it's just this big swell, and it, it just moves me. And we went recently. Gus got this for my birthday to go listen to it at the Colorado Symphony, and I was just, oh, <laughs> you know, it just mm, goosebumps everything. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then Nimrod from the Enigma Variations by Elgar. That's that'll get me too. Yeah, definitely. And and I know uh, singing in a choir. I know you've sung in choirs, Jana. I don't know if the rest of you have, but. You don't ever want to be <laughs> not at elementary school. Like okay, I okay. Too. Yeah. Um, but there, yeah, there's there's a deep connection, I think, in singing in a choir and, and singing that music with other people. And sometimes, yeah, it can be intensely moving. Wow. Yeah, um, the emotion. Yeah. 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 And for me, if I had to sum it up, and the album name just fits it perfectly, is Blue by Joni Mitchell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and there's two songs on there, River, which she talks about, you know, Christmas and like, the sadness that comes at the holidays sometimes. It does. Um, and and also Case of You. Um, there's like a sweetness to that. She talks about the wine being bittersweet. Um, and I mean, that's just, it just fits this theme. And you know what I mean, right? Mm-hmm. It's like. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The, it, Dan, the Dan Fogelberg song, Old St. Long, do you guys know what that is? About he met his old lover in the grocery store on Christmas Eve. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, I get tears right now just thinking about that. I, I don't know why. I was wondering, too. Um, you know, we talk about the lyrics and stuff, but especially with instrumental, um, is it is – it, do you think there's a connection between having um, particularly like classical music, just the regular melody of it, but then having some dissonant chords, the actual – notes being played are minor key or dissonant mixed in with other you know, with the regular key that it's played in you think that is part of the bittersweetness sure yeah could be i don't think necessarily that if it's in a minor key it's a sad song i don't really no. agree with that but that 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 change or having both mm. there might bring kind of evoke 
the bitter and the sweet in some ways. I find that music with the music that really affects me, if I'm singing it, you know, it's the words and stuff. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's uh, you'll sing in Latin or something and you don't know what the words mean. <laughs> but if there are words, I get a little – it's harder for me to access my my heart mm-hmm. side. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of the words and what they mean, so I'm very much in my brain. But with classical music or, or, or language that you don't know, that's what really intensely catches me in my heart because my brain doesn't have much to do. Can check out. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. I so mean, it's not allowed that in. makes sense. Yeah. And there are so many songs she mentions in this book. Um, she mentions the cellist of Sarajevo, yeah. I believe, mm-hmm. and playing Albanoni in the cemetery mm-hmm. yeah. despite ongoing raids and risking his life. That's and, pretty intense. That is. Yeah. But just... The, the necessity for for him to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Kane writes that longing is momentum in disguise. It's active, not passive, touched with the creative, the tender, and the divine. We long for something or someone. We reach for it. We move towards it. What has longing meant to you? What are you longing for? Your unique imprint, singular mission, wor- wordless calling. No one else wanted to respond to this question, but I love this question. Oh, Denise, okay. I did. Uh, Denise, did you have thoughts about this? <laughs> <laughs> I did. I I um, had to think about it because it seemed, you know, a little bit harder for my brain to kind of pin down um, because you don't necessarily, I don't know, spend a lot of time actively thinking about, you know, the momentum of your life. They're just thoughts you have. But um, I feel like... For me, longing is uncomfortable because it's not just I set a goal and I'm working toward it. There's just so much emotion that can be associated with it. But it, it definitely is the uncomfortableness, I think, is part of the motivation. Um, if it were all happy, we would just sort of tootle along on that path of life. But there has to be things that make us want to go faster or or harder or something. Um, but I also feel like just as much as it's it's an element that causes you to move toward things that you're in the same time moving away from something. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you, you long, but you long to not have or not be or mm-hmm. not experience at the same time. And I find that, you know, something that is uncomfortable. I long to not experience that. Ergo, I long to do what's necessary to be in a different place physically or a different experience. And for me, it's it tends to be longing to see lost family members. Mm. Um, we have a very small family, so it's very noticeable to have you know a grandparent or a parent. One of the hardest things after I lost my dad, which will be uh, thirteen, it's been about twelve and a half years, was those moments of that you catch yourself, you see something in a story, you're like, oh, I should show, mm. or you're like, I should call, mm-hmm. and then you can't call. You can't show. You can't have that connection anymore, um, but you want it so bad. So the next best thing is like to show my brother, tell my brother, because it's just us. But we we get it. Yeah. I like how when she was talking about the terrible beauty of transience, that she mentioned nature because that's been mm-hmm. um, important in my life. Mm-hmm. And she says that you know in those moments. Um, Especially in the presence of sublime music, art, and nature, we grasp the tragic majesty of it. Um, 
and the rest of the time we're simply living it. So I thought about moments, you know, when it kind of hits you. And sometimes that happens when you're listening to music. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes for me, it's when I'm on the top of a mountain. And and that's part of the longing, I think, is just the longing to get out there because it puts you in a different mindset where you're kind of just in that, in that moment, um, transcending the daily, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think today is like a wonderful day to do this recording all because Saints, it is. Yeah, yeah I'll say <laughs> it's Day of the Dead, Dia de los Muertos, and mentioning, Denise mentioning connecting with, you know, deceased loved ones. And that, I think, is the heart of that holiday, right? Mm-hmm. Where you're creating an ofrenda, an altar, and putting things that would attract the spirits back, um, and you put the things that they loved in life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's very, it's very poignant. Uh, <laughs> For sure. I, I think, too, just when you said... Um, you know, moments of transcendence, of being on a mountain or beautiful music, or it's also, you know, the, the, the tiny things too. Um, I remember when my friend Anne died soon after she died and, or it might've been before and I knew she was dying. Um, you know, you'd, you'd be outside and the sun would be on your mm-hmm. shoulder mm-hmm. or the wind would blow your hair around. And I'd be like, just feel this, feel this, feel this, because she can't feel it anymore. She won't be able to feel it anymore. And, mm-hmm. and just, you know, it's very, it's very simple things. Yep. Your feet on grass mm-hmm. and you're just so thankful that, that you have it, you know? Mm-hmm. That's the poetry of the everyday, I think. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. And, yeah, and I think that poetry helps you to see those tiny details and to mm-hmm. stop and notice them. But are you going to yeah. notice them if you've not had that sort of pain right right yeah yeah that loss that so do you think you're born being able to tap into that because it's like i don't really relate to this like i don't you know the sun's nice on my shoulder sure whatever i don't stop and smell the roses i guess Um, i don't don't live my life like that and i don't know if i you have to teach yourself that or if you're just born like that i don't know i don't know i think you're born somewhat that way probably part of a personality but i would have to also say I don't think it's, I would be really um, concerned for for anyone who would say that it it was a flaw. It's not a bad thing. You know, it's all different perspectives and different experiences. And one thing that we were talking about was just the nice um, mix that we have even in this group for the discussion, because we have two people in the middle and two people at either end of that bittersweet scale, which has a beautiful, again, richness Mm -hmm to our conversation. So um, kind of pulls us in those different directions. So it's not necessarily a missing out or a bad thing or, you know, a downside. I think it's, it just, your perspective adds to that narrative in a, in a really different way. Hmm. And one thing I do tell people who I know have um, either not lost someone in a long time or had some kind of sad event I always I say, you know, for me, it's always the little things that'll get you. It's those everyday, mm-hmm. mundane, you know, nondescript things, that little moment that's just like, oh, yeah. It's not the necessarily grander scheme because it catches you off guard. Mm-hmm. But like the anniversary of a death or right. some of these, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember being really sad um, when my son got his driver's license, and I know that my dad was really looking forward yeah. to, like, yeah. seeing And I, you're talking about longing, you know, because your dad has gone, too longing for that family member where I, you know, I miss my dad. Mm -hmm. I don't think I long for him. 
I long for him. Like mm. I'm, I'm sad that he's missing out on stuff, mm-hmm. not that I'm missing out on stuff. So Susan Cain writes that connecting with what matters and taking committed action moves us from bitter to sweet, from loss to love. Everyone experiences loss. It is part of the human condition. How have you moved from bitter to sweet, from loss to love? Are there coping strategies you recommend? So we were kind of talking about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was particularly moved by the the chapter about the violinist Min Kim yeah. and how her violin was stolen from her, I think, in Times Square. And she was so connected with that instrument that she identified her entire person with the violin. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said it, it just has taken her a long time to accept that the person I was with the violin is gone. So it was a grieving process for her. But she came to realize that she was a new person and she said, I wouldn't have chosen it. And so I think when you get on the other side of grief, you say, well, I really would not have chosen that, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I related to that so much for the griefs that I have gone through. Um, but the other side of it is that when you recover from any loss, when you heal, when your soul starts to heal from the shock, a new part grows. So when you're talking about growth um, coming in the garden or mm-hmm. in your soul, And she said, you know, I'm going to take that loss and create a new art form with it. And I think that's at the heart of grief and, Mm -hmm. and moving on and Mm -hmm. healing. Absolutely. Um, And it, and it's at the heart of that Leonard Cohen quote about like the cracks is where the light gets in. And she has that at the beginning of her book. And when we read broken, um, the memoir, um, by Jenny Lawson, broken in the best possible way, right? She, she referred to that Leonard Cohen song anthem Mm -hmm. as well and you know I was thinking about this and I was thinking about all the scars on my body and I thought that they kind of related because when I was little and I got the chicken pox I was really embarrassed like oh I'm gonna have these marks on me and then I realized like as I've gotten older I was like oh yeah that's where I burned myself because I had two little boys and I was trying to cook dinner for my family and like Mm -hmm. you know these different things that you kind of oh yeah this is where I had to get something cut off of my neck because I had something growing there and then you kind of look at it differently and it's like these are the things that make your life up and in way make you unique absolutely yeah Yeah, the stretch marks on my stomach and my breasts and that's came from my children right adding adding sweet to the bitter yeah Mm -hmm. i've had open heart surgery twice i got all kinds of scars but i'm alive right exactly so um that leads into the next question where we're going to talk about um toxic positivity and she says that, you know, bittersweet can be an antidote to our culture of toxic positivity. Yeah. Um, do you think this term accurately describes our culture? And if so, how does a bittersweet lens help to counter the pressure to always act positive no matter what? And I, you know, in thinking about my scars and how I was, as a little girl, I was like, oh, I have to be perfect. I have to be beautiful. And, yeah. and now I realize I see that differently. I, I do. I do think that accurately describes our culture. I mean, there was somewhere in, in one of these notes that said Americans smile the most or something. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, you know, and she was talking in the book that you can go to work and you can be sad about, you know, losing a family member or, um, you know, your house burning down on a wildfire. Those are acceptable things to be sad about at work. But you don't get to go to work and cry about your, you know, your dog dying or, well, no, you can cry about that. <laughs> you don't, can't go to work and cry about like some kind of financial mistake that you made and, and now you're living yeah. in poverty or, you know, you're, you're going through divorce or... 
or you like broke the mug that morning that right. a friend gave you. Yeah, right, yeah. There's acceptable away. things to be sad about, yeah. you know, in public, and I only guess. for a certain amount of time. Right, yeah. right. Um, and I and I am <laughs> yeah. guilty of this. I don't like to be emotional in front of people. Like mm-hmm. I will go home and, and have my grief there and then put on a happy little face and, and come to work and, or come, you know, go mm-hmm. to the grocery store, or be with my friends outside of work. And so, yeah, this, I'm guilty of this. I was thinking about, so our default greeting, you know, hi, how are you? Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to respond. Fine. How are you? Yeah. Well, I'm good. And you don't deviate from that Absolutely. because it's not, you're not really asking how people are. Mm-hmm. You don't care. Honest, I mean, you you don't. It's just like it's just a thing you throw away. And, and if somebody said, "Well, I'm, I'm doing really bad," oh, you can kind of put you back on your heels, and you don't. Well, I don't really have time to talk about that. Mm-hmm. And I really loved how she put bittersweetness with compassion and sadness with compassion, because that when they talked about the Pixar show, mm-hmm. sadness was the thing that connects us. Mm-hmm. It's the thing that brings us together. We all have experienced it. I, I think in our society, yeah, we we need something else. Mm-hmm. If we're not interested in hearing the answer, how are you? Yeah. Well, you know, we shouldn't ask it. Although I think you guys have figured out by now, if you ask me that, <laughs> I will unleash. You will. You will. So and we like, better be ready to listen. Is there a culture or a society that is the opposite? Oh, maybe. I'm sure there is. I think Latin cultures maybe kind of come to mind or maybe some African cultures mm-hmm. where it's more open anyway. To me, I was thinking about the expressions say la vie and like mm. that's life and just like ah. they're not so rosy i feel like in some places like france also mm-hmm. um i would say scandinavia just the sense of like you know life can be difficult and yeah. and 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 sometimes we're not smiling and that's okay mm-hmm. like we're just okay with that part of ourselves yeah hmm. yeah I think um, yeah totally right more mm-hmm. so than us and i think she talks about how our our country and our history is uniquely tied down to or tied into, um, you know, predestination, Calvinism, um, the gospel of prosperity, which tied someone's worth, like in terms of their soul, mm-hmm. to their success in business. Mm-hmm. And, and we, you know, and with tycoons being our high priests, and this has come to pass, um, who, you know, are reelecting into highest office and, mm-hmm. you know, in the idea of um, manifest destiny, mm-hmm. we talked about that when we talked about the Westerns of this landscape being open and, and, you know, open to everyone in the sense of like just this amazing amount of optimism and everyone can, you know, bootstrap right. themselves yeah. and, and make it happen and people not wanting to take charity, um, just this idea of immense self-reliance. I think in some ways it kind of ignores some of those other sides of life, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and social media you, and, and just I think it's getting better, sort of the the understanding of mental illness and being able to say, no, I'm not happy. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I have – I'm sad. And no, I don't have any reason to be sad, but I'm sad. Mm-hmm. To be able to say that and express that, it's a lot more accepted. But still, I mean, I think we still s- present mm-hmm. because people don't have – because we don't really care how we're doing. Our, our, our relationships in many ways at work sometimes, and it's just very surface level. We're just going to maintain this so we can get through our day. Mm-hmm. This nice. Mm-hmm. There's that word again, nice. Nobody wants to be nice. Yeah. Nice is boring. I don't know. Yeah. I think that's just our culture. It's just too fast. We don't really, we just don't want to know. Yeah, because we're thinking that. about what we have to get done. And yeah. What, what our I don't have time is. for your complaining or your sadness. Yeah, I know I had a... Um, a friend years ago that she it was kind of a long term seemingly divorce situation and it was 
I mean, I don't know, maybe a year and a half or so. And every time I would see her, you know, how are you doing? She's like, oh, well, you know, my marriage, this, and my marriage is here. And, and she's sharing. And it's not like she just went into 20 minutes yeah. of whatever, but I felt bad because every time yeah, yeah. that's where she was and she was in that space for a long time and so I got to where part of me was like I how do I don't want to ask and I, <laughs> yes and I'm like oh I'm such a jerk um and like and I think maybe it was me trying to like is there a sweetness to go with this is there is there some mm. way to like round some of the the rough edges of that but I couldn't do anything I can't insert myself into her marriage and right make it better so yeah it, Society often tells us to wear a brave and happy face, but Susan Cain notes, if we could honor sadness a little more, maybe we could see it as a bridge we need to connect with others. How have you reacted when you see a stranger crying or a loved one struggling? Why do you think we disguise our sadness or hide our tears? And I I was reminded of a quote in the book um, where she talks about disenfranchised grief where there was a woman who listened to her TED Talk who was from Jordan and all her sisters had been killed. She was not able to talk about or access her grief at all because her mother, instead of helping her process emotions because the mother could never cry, she stuck her with a nanny who then abused her. Um, And she writes that, you know, we really do need to teach grief to our children, you know, not only just how we grieve, but also the grief of previous generations and generational trauma, which we've talked about before on the podcast, um, the grief of what you could be, but you're not because you're told who you are. I loved, I also mm-hmm. loved that kind yeah. of idea of how, and she was talking about women often specifically getting pigeonholed, right, and told who we can be. I don't think we know as a society how to deal with loss. Or how, how do we teach our children? I don't. I mean, I wasn't really taught how to be sad by my parents. I mean, I, ha- I had a fairly happy childhood. I mm-hmm. kind of feel like I clip along on an even, mm-hmm. you know, I'm I'm happy mostly, most of the time. Um, I don't really want for anything. Um, but I don't, I've never thought about, do I teach my child grief? I've, I feel like I've taught him a lot of things and I try to be really conscious about, mm-hmm. you know, other things, you know, mental health and sexuality and, you know, lots of things that, you know, we, I could talk about with him, but I don't think I've ever had a conversation about like, what do you do when you're sad? Mm-hmm. Do you ask that question to your children? I never have. I don't really ask that question, but it kind of took me back. There've been a few over the last few years, uh, documentaries about like Mr. Rogers. And Aww. I think he was such a pioneer of, um, I mean, I think he's a good example yeah. of presenting bittersweet because sometimes it's like, hey, we're feeding the fish and we're going to make this with Play-Doh and we're going to talk to this person, but we're also going to talk about divorce and we're going to talk about sadness. And I remember the first time I think it was he said, and I was older, I think my kids might have been watching it, but you know, that phrase, it's okay to be sad. Just the fact that it's okay, mm-hmm. not even necessarily what you do with it, but that it's a state that's okay to be in mm-hmm. and it's okay to be angry and um, I think my kids got quite a bit of support with that in elementary school. Our yeah. district does a good job mm-hmm. of that. Um, I remember a song I sang <laughs> at, a, at a talent show. Mm-hmm. God, I think I was first grade or second grade. <laughs> Do you want to sing it now? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's all right to cry. Oh, Crying gets the sad out of you. It's all right to cry. Oh, it might make you feel, feel better. better. Raindrops from your eyes. Washing all the badness out, you raindrops from your eyes. Yeah, it might make you feel better. It's all right to feel things, so the feelings may be strange. 
feelings are such real things and they change and change and change. And this was in Kansas then. Yeah. Right? I've yeah. never heard yeah. that. That's great. I've heard that song. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I think great. yeah, you kind of hit it on the head, right? Just like talk to your children about emotions, mm-hmm. educate them, cry in front of them. Show emotions yeah. to them. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Our cultural rituals, 4th of July, New Year's Eve, happy birthday to you, celebrate birth rather than help us live with impermanence and sorrow. Historically, we see the U.S. as a land of abundant resources, the frontier of limitless self-invention, while ignoring the dark parts of the American story. How has the tyranny of positivity, as she writes, affected your life? Have you ever felt like the master of okay? What do you think this does to us? I liked this question because I felt like religions and Christianity, you know, they, there's a lot of not great things about it. <laughs> um, but a, a thing that I really find very refreshing in it, um, so my two favorite sort of church holidays are today, All Saints Day, Ash Wednesday. In many traditions, Christian traditions, you um, they take – Holy Week's previous palms, and they burn them, and they take that soot, and they put a cross on your head and said, you are, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You know, basically saying, you, you are made, and you'll be unmade. Um, and they do it to everybody. Huh, I didn't so know that. you line up in a line, and you go up to the front, and they, you are dust, remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And they do it to everybody, the really old people that go up there, and the walkers. Um, the middle-aged folks that go up there, uh, young mothers who go up there, and it gets done to them, and it gets done to their baby in their hands. And I get so emotional mm. at that service because just seeing all these people mm-hmm. and, and realizing that, yeah, they're, they'll be gone. Mm-hmm. No, I, I don't know. And I think, yeah. I think religion has a lot. It may be morbid, some people think, to focus on mortality and impermanence, but I, I think we don't get that a lot in our culture necessarily. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. Um, but we still get it in some yeah. traditions and, and faith traditions. And mm-hmm. I, I think that's yeah. something that they can give that's mm-hmm. that's good. Along that that line, I I think I have more appreciation for that, for the times that, and I couldn't tell you the specific day or circumstances, but especially when you're younger, you're feeling what you're feeling a little bit more unfettered because you haven't, you know, had all these things, Mm -hmm. ideas and constraints put on you. And as that sort of middle of the road, bittersweet person, you'll be, I don't know, at a wedding or at a something and you'll think about or say something that's kind of nostalgic or maybe a memory or something kind of grounding, I guess. And you'll hear someone say, oh, you're bringing down the mood. You know, this uh is a celebration. Wet blanket. Yeah, exactly. That's what one of the things I wrote in my notes. Oh, you're being a wet blanket. And that was so painful. It's like I'm trying to – and I didn't even realize that I was just trying to have a deeper experience mm-hmm. and also share that. Mm-hmm. Like we can celebrate this more because they came through this or, mm-hmm. you know, whatever it was. And I remember that time that – and you just kind of met with this slap in the face of this is not the time for that. Okay, well, now I can't – now I totally can't even enjoy it. Right. I got nothing now. Now that there's funerals. I've lost both of my grandparents, my mom's parents, and there was no funeral and there was no real memorial. It was just, mm. wow, they're dead. And, and, and that was really bothersome to me. Sure. <laughs> yeah, it feels like there is a need for ritual. And she, yeah. I think she mentioned this in an interview I listened to with her about how even if 
you're not specifically religious. Like she uh, writes that she's an atheist, but she has these tendencies towards a bittersweet and she is. She's uh, agnostic. She's not. Okay. Yeah. Agnostic. Thank you. Yeah. But she's kind of rediscovering the the traditions um, because a lot of the religious traditions touch on, on the bittersweet. Uh Um, Like the Sufis and yeah. 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 So, but I was just, when you were saying that, I was just thinking that somehow along the way, um, secular society became very deprived of ritual mm-hmm. and ritual helps us process mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. these different emotions that we all go through and, and bring us together that we all hold in common. You're left if you don't have a religion to tap into, which I don't, you're left to c- come up with those rituals yourself. I'll just end with a quote from the book, which the author said is above her writing desk. And I, I loved it so much. It's from uh, Portuguese author, Walter Hugo May, I might be mispronouncing that. I'm sorry, I don't speak Portuguese. But um, <laughs> he wrote, it's urgent to live enchanted. And I think that beautifully encapsulates the message of this book, uh, Bittersweet. Thank you, Devin, Josie, and Denise for a poignant discussion of Susan Cain's Bittersweet. For our next episode, we've chosen an uplifting fiction title just in time for the holiday season, Perestroika in Paris, by Pulitzer Prize-winning and best-selling author Jane Smiley, whose book the New York Times describes as a captivating, brilliantly imaginative story of three extraordinary animals and a young boy whose lives intersect in Paris in this feel-good escape. So, choose your favorite format, read the book, and join the conversation. See our program notes on this episode for details on how to share your comments and questions with us. We'd love to hear from you. And thanks for listening to Book Chatter, the book club for busy people.